Well, if you will turn with me to Galatians 1. As you're turning there, I'd like to ask you if you have ever had this unique experience of being at the beach on a vacation, enjoying a beautiful day, sun and surf, you're out swimming, maybe you're throwing the football, you're body surfing or boogie boarding, and you're just enjoying yourself, when after a period of time, you notice something strange has happened. Your hotel has disappeared. You look back to the beach and you say, I could have sworn we were staying right there. That is clearly not my hotel. And when at last you locate it, you realize it is quite a stretch down the beach. And what has happened? You have drifted. Slowly and perceptibly, you have drifted. And you thought you were staying in one area. You thought you were doing the same thing you had been doing for the last hour. But in fact, quietly, secretly, slowly, you are moving down the shore. That happens a lot in life, that we drift without even noticing it. Years ago, I had a friend who took his car off the road, flipped it. He was okay, but had totaled the whole vehicle. Now, what would be the culprit of such a horrible wreck? The radio. You just look down at the radio, adjusting the dial. That was it. Just that momentary lapse of focus was enough for him to drift off the road, for his tire to catch the edge and send him down and over and wreck the car. It just takes a little bit. Or maybe you've done this mowing before. You're mowing and, and just for a second there your mind wanders. You're thinking about this or that. Or perhaps you look up and see a car passing on the street. And then when you get to the end of your row, you turn around and it's bending off like that. You've, you've drifted again. It just takes a second and off we go. We are people that drift. And the same is true as we come to the gospel. As we talk about our walk in faith as we talk about the central core of who we are as believers, in the same way that we sometimes lose focus and drift down the beach or lose focus and drift off the road, so in the same way, sometimes we take our eyes off the gospel and we drift and we lose that central anchor. And church becomes for us a ritual, a set of traditions Church becomes for us a certain way to dress, a certain way to talk, a certain way to act. Maybe it is, in your mind, the typical Easter morning where everybody's dressed up nicer than they ever would have dressed with big million-dollar smiles, everybody faking it. And maybe that is what church has become for you. And you've misplaced the gospel. You've drifted from it. And so now you dread church as work, as obligation. Or perhaps church for you is now mostly a flurry of activities. You love to be here. And if somebody asks you, though, what is the church about? I mean, what's, what's all this fuss over? You say, well, it's just such a joy to serve, to go and participate in Awana, to lead a small group, to teach an ABF. And church for you is primarily the stuff you do. And you, too, have abandoned the gospel. Not on purpose. Not maliciously, but just a slow and subtle drift. The Lord wants to put on your heart a new song. And maybe this morning you sit out there and you've forgotten the tune. 
How did that once go? That great gospel. And so this morning, if you need a refocusing on the gospel, if your soul needs to be reminded of this core truth of who we are, of what we have received in Christ, well, then you are going to love this series in Galatians. Because Galatians, the book of Galatians, is all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel. Here's some things that have been said about the book of Galatians throughout the years. It has been called the impregnable citadel against any attack on the heart of the gospel. So over against our tendency to drift stands this impregnable citadel, a virtual Gibraltar, a rock that will not be moved, the book of Galatians, the anchor for the gospel. It has been called the Magna Carta of the early church, the great charter, the foundational document that the church was built on, the book of Galatians. It has been called the masthead of the Reformation. So centuries ago, when we were recovering again what it meant to be truly believers, when we were sifting through all the tradition and all the church-isms, what was at the pinnacle, at the masthead? The book of Galatians. It was central to reclaiming the gospel. And so it is no wonder that Martin Luther, the great reformer, the one who is credited with getting this whole ball rolling, this whole Protestantism which we now walk in, he said... Galatians is my book. I am wedded to it. He said, I'm married to the book of Galatians. Let this be my song forevermore, the message of Galatians. It has been called a declaration of emancipation. It has been called the manifesto of Christian liberty. It has been called Paul's fighting epistle. You're going to see a little glimpse of that in the verses we're going to read this morning. But his fighting epistle. It has been God, called God's polemic against legalism of every and any description. And so maybe it is little wonder that John Wesley, when he began to preach his open air sermons and call Europe to revival, that he started with Galatians. If you want to recover the gospel, if you want to see the gospel, start with Galatians. And that's where we're going to begin. We're going to recover the gospel. Now let me give you a little bit of the situation that goes into the book of Galatians. Here's what's happening as we approach this book. Paul, in years past, on one of his early missionary journeys, planted these churches in the area of Galatia. He gave them the gospel. And then as he often did, he began to move on once the churches were established. And he continued to preach and shared the good news throughout the regions, kept moving on. Well, in the time that he left, some other itinerant preachers made their way into the congregations there in Galatia. And they said, Yes, you did hear the gospel. Kind of. Sort of. Well, maybe you're missing a few things. Let me, let me add to that a few aspects And so they begin to mess with the minds of the Galatian believers, saying that there's a little bit more to the gospel that you missed out on. Yes, this is true, but also this, 
this and this. And they were complicating the gospel. They were confusing the gospel. And Paul hears about it. And Paul hears about it. And he writes them this letter. He says, I've got to correct what I'm hearing. And we'll see why this is so key, why the gospel is so precious and why we cannot pollute it, change it, tweak it. It must remain as it is. And so the itinerant preachers that came in, they were sometimes called Judaizers or legalizers. They were adding back to the gospel some Jewish requirements. So Paul had preached to the church in Galatia there a free gospel for anyone, Jew or Gentile. But now these other believers have crept in from a Jewish persuasion or saying, yes, in particular, you need to add back circumcision. If you're not circumcised, then the gospel has not fully been applied to you. They added back some rites and rituals. And so what had come under attack was the gospel and also the ministry of Paul. And so as we begin this book together, as we read the first 10 verses, you'll already see Paul beginning to address those two central issues. The gospel that he's preached and his ministry. And he goes right at those two issues. Now we'll develop those further in the coming weeks, but we'll see those streams begin this week. So turn with me here to Galatians 1. 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, And are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received... Let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now we see in these opening verses here that Paul makes four sweeping corrections right off the bat. And Paul is going to give us four tidbits about the gospel that we need to understand, to understand the gospel rightly. The first thing that Paul wants to make sure that we see is the gospel is unique. The gospel is unique. Now, I don't mean by that that the gospel is weird, strange, odd, although it somewhat is. I mean primarily that the gospel stands alone. It is the only true gospel. There is no other gospel. It is uncomparable. It is irreplicatable. There is only one gospel. It is wholly unique. Now the Galatians were being talked into thinking perhaps there was another version. And the one they had heard was somehow wrong or deficient. But Paul is quick to say, 
No. There is no other gospel. What does he say in verse 7? Not that there is another one. I may in some sense refer to this other gospel they're preaching, but there is not another one. There is only the one I proclaim to you, says Paul. The gospel of God. It is unique. Now, what exactly is the gospel? Well, to hear what the gospel message is, is to begin to understand a bit of its uniqueness. I believe the gospel, boiled down to its most, most core, irreducible phrase, is this. I believe that we proclaim the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. That is the message that we have been preaching for 2,000 years. The forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot there. There's a lot that can be unpacked. But that is the core message, the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Now, we could talk about your sin. Talking about sin is a great way to introduce the good news. But the good news is there is forgiveness for sins through Jesus Christ. Now, we could talk about what's going on behind the curtains. We could talk about justification, election, call, all those different things. The things that we believe the scriptures have revealed to us are happening as he forgives us and saves us. We could talk about substitutionary atonement. But the simplest form is forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Now we could talk about the flowering of the gospel. We could talk about how out of that we receive the Holy Spirit. We receive the spirit of adoption that confirms that God himself has adopted us as sons and daughters. That we have received his spirit and are now being transformed. Talk about sanctification. The ongoing work of salvation being worked out and played out in our lives. We can talk about the consummation of the gospel. That is that one day we will receive the resurrection body. That we will have bodies that do not perish, that do not get hurt, that do not die. That we will one day receive a new heavens and a new earth in which to live. But at the core, it all starts with this message. All of that is made possible by the fact that you can be forgiven through what Jesus Christ has done. The forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Now we see this laid out elsewhere. Paul mentions it in Colossians 1.14 and Ephesians 1.7. Throughout the book of Acts, right at the beginning of the church, Acts 2.38, Peter proclaims this very thing, the forgiveness of sins. Why should they repent and believe that they might have their sins forgiven? Forgiveness in Christ. Now why is that so unique? Because Within that phrase, we see why it is alone. The forgiveness comes through Christ. That's the only place that forgiveness comes. The gospel is unique because it has been won by Christ. So any other good news that the world may offer you, if it does not have this in it, the forgiveness of sins through Christ, it is no good news at all. It may shimmer and shine, but it will ultimately prove false. There is no other hope apart from this great hope. Forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul uses a very strong language when he approaches the Galatian believers. When he sees that they have begun to drift from this. He says, I am astonished that you have so quickly deserted this precious message. You have deserted this. That word he uses for astonished, it is the same word used to describe the disciples 
after they saw Jesus calm the storm. So Jesus stands down nature. He stares it in the face and speaks a word of quiet and stillness. And like that, it is stilled. And it says the disciples were astonished. It's the same word that is used of the crowd when they saw that the mute were now speaking because of Christ's work. When they see that the cripple are now walking, it says the crowds were astonished. So this is the term reserved often for miracles. It is a big word. It can hold that much surprise. And Paul says, I cannot believe. I am shocked. You're killing me, guys, that you have abandoned the gospel. And we see why now. Because it is wholly unique. How can you abandon this one thing? There's not another option to appeal to. It is unique. Christ has won it. And so he is flabbergasted that they have abandoned this very core gospel. We see Jesus affirming this as well in John fourteen sixteen, He says as much, he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. A unique gospel. There's only one door. There's only one name. And it is the name of Jesus as we have sung. At the name of Jesus we're forgiven. The name of Jesus we're healed. There's only one name. It's Jesus. Forgiveness of sins. The beginning of that whole restoration project begins with Jesus. It is only through Jesus. It is only as we speak and call on that name. This is what Peter preaches as well. Again in Acts 4.12. Acts 4.12 he says, And there is salvation and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one name, the unique gospel. And so for this reason, Paul invokes a curse in verse 9. What does he say? He says, as I have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be eternally condemned. And indeed, there's no other choice. To step away from Christ is to step away from hope. It is to be condemned. And so Paul says, I am astonished that you are deserting your only hope. One gospel, a unique gospel. Well, as we move to the second thing that Paul is very clear to say, we, we kind of dovetail with where we've just been. We begin to see why this is so unique in a more full sense. The second thing that Paul wants us to be sure to understand is the gospel is of God. The gospel is of God. What do we read here in verse 4? We'll start in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So it was by the plan of God that the gospel came into being. This great message, it was God's idea. It was by his plan. He wrote it. He cast it. He executed this story. This is his story. It is from God. We did not come up with it in some think tank. There was not some seminary meeting somewhere that came up. Hey, here's an idea for a religion. Why don't we do this? No. God himself wrote this story. 
C.S. Lewis once remarked, Christianity must be from God for who else could have thought it up? Who could have thought of a God who comes down and dies, seemingly the loser, and you're out of that victory? And Paul says, this is God's idea. From the beginning, it was his plan. Everything that unfolded at Calvary was by his plan. And so while his enemies held on to Jesus, there was something still greater holding on to Jesus. It was the will of God. So as Jesus was scourged, as Jesus walked the hill of Calvary, as Jesus eventually hung on that cross, all of it was under the sovereign care of God. This story is God's story. It is from him. This has all been his plan. This is no improvisation. There's no ad lib from God. God has, from the beginning of time, set out to rescue the likes of you and me. This gospel is from him. Paul did not cook this up. The first century Christians did not cook this up. This is from God. And as C.S. Lewis said, who else could have thought of this? Who else could have thought of this? This message is from God. But it's also by God. We mentioned this a little bit earlier. But again, to draw your attention to verse 4, how does this come about? It's from God, but it's also by and through God in the sense that it is Christ who, verse 4, gave himself for our sins. To deliver us from this present evil age. So it is Christ who has delivered us. This is no triumph of the human will. The gospel is not about your determination. It is not about you being good enough. It is not about you getting your act together. The gospel, the news of forgiveness and salvation, is the news of something that Christ has done. That God has accomplished this through his son, Jesus Christ. The gospel is from God and it is by God. He has done this. He has done this. And ultimately we see not only that, but it is also to God. How does Paul end this first little greeting? He says, It was according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So the gospel story is beginning, middle, and end. God's story. It was his idea. It was executed by him. And ultimately, it is to his glory. It redounds to his greatness. The glory of God. This is his story. And to understand that is to see why Paul is so upset. You realize to somehow alter the gospel is to take away the very good newsiness that it carries. When you see that the gospel is so contingent on what God has done, you realize to alter it is to risk harm to yourself. And so Paul is upset that they have started to tweak this gospel. But he says, if you understand the DNA of the gospel, that it is all of God, you realize, I can't tamper with it. I would not dare to tamper with it. It is perfect. It is complete. It is solid because God himself has wrought this gospel. We dare not mess with it. It would be like, walking into a store with a fistful of Monopoly money. To alter the gospel would be like walking in with a fistful of Monopoly money and saying, I'd like to purchase a a TV. And I lay out before them this nice green Monopoly money. And they'd say, that's not money. Sure it is. Money's paper, this is paper. What do you want? But that's not money. 
what, what are you talking about? Money's green. This paper's green. I even went at lengths to find the green Monopoly money and bring that in. It's green. It's got a dollar sign on it. It's got a face on it. Milton Bradley's right there. Clearly, this is money. And they would say, oh, you have fundamentally misunderstood what money is. Money is from the government, by the government, supposedly representing money in a bank somewhere. (laughs) That's another story. But money is supposed to represent something that's actually there. And it only becomes money as it is so-called kind of ordained to be money. It is from the government, by the government. So to somehow change it and think, because I got something that's green, that's paper with a dollar sign on it, I must have money. You say, no, you don't have money. You've misunderstood the DNA of what it is money actually does and how it works. And so in the same way, to somehow change the gospel, to tinker with it, to mess with the DNA, you don't have a gospel at all once you do that. When you realize the gospel is from God, by God, to God, you realize I can't mess with any of that or it's no good news at all. It is only good news as I see that he has done it, that he did what I could not do. Because he did it, it is perfect. Because God himself did it, it is complete. There's no way to replicate that. The gospel is completely of God. And so Paul next wants to clarify then that not only is the gospel unique, not only is it of God, but the gospel is faithfully delivered. He wants us to know that he has been so careful in bringing this gospel to the Galatians. And and for us to know that he has been so careful in writing out this letter that we now have before us. Because we understand now why he'd be so careful. It's unique. It's of God. He's not going to mess with it. He doesn't want to alter one little piece. And so he goes at lengths to show us that he has faithfully delivered it. He has been a faithful messenger from the Lord. What does he say? He says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle. So first of all, he, he drops that he is an apostle. Now, to be an apostle, that is a generic term used elsewhere in antiquity. It was often used of uh, maybe a delegation sent out, a naval fleet. And so you can imagine maybe somebody coming to the Americas and planting a flag and reading a declaration. They were, in a sense, a, an apostle. They might, that term might be used in that generic sense of just somebody that's been sent out on behalf of the king to claim something, to declare something. So Paul is that in the most generic sense. Paul is also... An apostle in the kind of capital A sense. There is a more distinct biblical understanding of apostleship, which is that you have seen the risen Christ and you've been commissioned by him. And Paul says, I have, I have met those requirements as well. But then he goes at length to unpack his faithfulness and his role as an apostle. Now, maybe you, you do this from time to time yourself. Uh, when I email somebody, if I know the person well, if it's a short little email, kind of the, yeah, I got it, I'll see you at 12, I might just sign my name DG. Because they know who I am, it's just a quick note, very impersonal relationship. Now, if I email somebody that may not be sure who DG is, I, I may just say Derek. Now, if I email somebody who is in the church and perhaps they know the other Derek, um, he's okay, but... Um, I'll put Derek Grizz, right? So that you know this Derek Grizz is emailing you. And if I was to email somebody from maybe a guest or somebody that's new here, and they would say, Derek Grizz, who's that? I might sign it, Derek Grizz, pastor to students, West Park Baptist Church. Oh, 
that guy. I think I met him on Sunday. But when a student asks me to write a letter of recommendation, and I need some authority with my name, that I'm not just some name they made up and then wrote the letter themselves, I give the full thing. I say, Derek Grizz, pastor of students, West Park Baptist Church, 8833 Middlebrook Pike, Knoxville, Tennessee, 37923, 865-690-0031, and maybe www.westparkbaptist.org. Because I want them to know that I'm a real person, that I have a real job, and I really think this is a good candidate for your school or program. And so Paul does the same thing. He says, Paul, an apostle. And then... Unlike his other letters, he often says Paul, an apostle. But in this letter, he says Paul, an apostle, and then begins to rattle off. Let me be really clear with what I mean by that. And he begins to rattle off the whole list. And so what's the first thing? He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men. So do you think some church was sitting around and cooked up this idea of apostleship? So you know what? We ought to have some people that go out and share the gospel. That's a good idea. No. The very idea of being sent, that is a God idea. This, this office of apostleship, that is a God idea. It originated with God. So don't question me, Church of Galatia, as I come to you with this gospel message. I came from the very beginning idea of God himself, from God. So not from men, nor even through man. So there's not even an intermediary there. Uh, something might, comparable might be uh, uh, ordination. So my ordination process... The idea of ordination starts with God. It is a biblical idea. But West Park mediates that idea. So they look around and deem who they see fit to ordain. But Paul's saying, I'll do you one better. Not only is it a God idea, but even the actual commissioning itself was from God. And so if we look at his conversion experience in Acts, we see that he was converted by God. And then Jesus... As he encounters Jesus there, Jesus himself commissions him to go. He commissions him to go. So Paul's saying, look, I come to you as someone with the authority of God. I'm not just some random rabbi coming and teaching ideas. God himself began this process, literally called me to this process. There's another detail here that the commentators often point out, is that what's unique in this letter is he does not mention his companions by name. In his other letters, he often mentions them by name. But he would not risk in this letter that the churches here might associate his power with those names. So he might say, Paul with Silas to the church, or Paul with Timothy to the church. But here he says, Paul, the other guys, to the church. That is to say, this is Paul, and that's enough. Paul, Christ's apostle, not from men, not through men, here to tell you the gospel. So he said, it has been faithfully delivered. I have not tampered with it. I do not take my calling lightly. It is from God, through God. And then finally, just to clear it up, just to really make sure, he says, verse 10, my motivation is unto God. I'm seeking to please God. You don't have to wonder if I've got an agenda. I don't. He says, for I am, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so he implies, I'm not trying to please man in this whole ordeal. What I'm telling you is gospel truth. So as we, as we begin to unfold Galatians, this will be important to remember that Paul's saying, look, this is the word of God. I'm just a messenger. This gospel is wonderful and beautiful and unique, and I would never dare tamper with it. 
And to understand who I am as an apostle would be for you to see that very thing, that I have faithfully delivered it. And so that is meant to be an encouragement to the churches in Galatia, but also to us, that Paul has faithfully recorded the gospel. This is why for centuries in the church, we have always gone back to this letter, our Magna Carta, the manifesto of freedom. This is it. We have it faithfully delivered to us. Paul, the apostle. By the way, just side note, it's interesting to see the comparison there that we said the gospel was from God, by God, to God. And Paul says, really, my ministry mirrors that very thing. It was from God, through God, and unto God. The motivation is unto God. So Paul would have you know that he speaks in line with this gospel message, in line with this authority of God. Now, I want you to let that, those, these first three kind of sink in for just a minute. Because if you, if you will really meditate on these just for a second, it will give more weight to this final point I want to share with you that, that Paul makes. So the gospel is unique. There's only one. And we come to see why that's so important more fully in, in number two, that the gospel is of God. It's, it's been worked by him. So how could there be another one? How could somebody go create a factory and start stamping out these other good news? No, there's only one gospel. It's from God. And it has been faithfully delivered. So Paul will not tamper with it. So it is this beautiful Wonderful thing. So I want you to envision this, this wonderful porcelain doll sitting on the counter. Perfect, beautiful, crafted by an artisan. Complete and ideal as it sits. And now here the last thing Paul wants to make sure that we get. The gospel is for us. The gospel is for us. So this perfect, beautiful, God-wrought gospel is given to the likes of us. This beautiful thing that he himself has made, that Paul has gone through pain and at length to deliver to us faithfully, he now hands us the porcelain doll, us with our little grubby, dirty fingers, and says, it is yours. The forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, it is yours. That's amazing. That's amazing. Who could have thought of this except God himself? He gives us the gospel. He says it is yours. I was thinking about the Kentucky Derby as, as maybe a, a, a comparison. I, I joke that I, I'm only a, a horse racing fan for about three minutes a year when ESPN forces me to watch it. And so, I was, you know, you're watching it. And in some ways, I was reflecting on that, the, you know, horse race is, you know, it's kind of Trinitarian in that there's a... This is what pastors do sitting around on Saturdays. Um, but, you know, there's an owner orchestrated the whole thing, purchased the horse, got all the money. There's the trainer. There's the jockey executing the plan, you know. And so as the horse crosses the finish line, of course, he's really doing all the work. But anyways, uh, you know, the glory goes to all these guys. And so imagine, though, this gospel scenario applied to that. And you'll see just how ridiculous it is. So imagine then that the owner has put up all this time and money and investment and, you know, purchased an excellent trainer, poured all this money. Some of these horses, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars poured into these horses. The jockey, whole life, working on this, executes the perfect race. And then as the horse crosses the finish line, they go out into the audience and say, who placed a bet on this horse? Because today, not only do you get your bet back, you get the prize money the wreath, the trophy, it's all yours. You say, what? All, all I did was place my bets on 
Smarty biscuit. I mean, what? What? Why do I get this? You say, that is completely ridiculous. I've done nothing. All I did was place my bets on this, and you say, I get the prize. But that's the story of the gospel. It's that God does it all, start to finish it, hatches the idea, executes it, and then says, and it's yours. See, all I did was place my bets on Christ. That's it? I just said, I'm with him? And that's enough? Yes, that's the good news. Is that there is forgiveness through Jesus, not through us, not through something we've done. There is forgiveness through what he has done. And that is an amazing thing. So Paul is so careful. Oh, Galatians. Oh, West Park. Don't lose the gospel. It is so beautiful, so precious. Built by God himself. Let us not tamper with it. Let me, let me just make just a couple quick, uh, just points of application. Kind of some so what's from this. One is I, I think all this tells us that you cannot fence the gospel, Okay. You know, if you have property, you might put a fence up around it. And you might, you might argue over where the property line lies. And if a tree falls over the line, you'll say, you've got you know, to repair my fence. That's my line. But if the gospel is God's, yes, given to us, but totally of him, then what right do we have to fence it? To say, here's where it stands. Here's who it's for. We don't have any right. It's his gift to give. And he tells us, he directs us to give it to all mankind. So even if you don't like that guy down the street, that's not up to you. This is God's gospel, and he's told you to give it away to everybody. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue will hear this gospel. You can't fence it. It's his to give. You cannot doubt the gospel. Right? Modern world would love for us to doubt the gospel. But you cannot doubt it, both in its effectiveness... It has been wrought by God. This is not a religious theory by some guy sitting up on a mountain meditating and here it is and you have to wonder, you know, I kind of wonder if this will work out. If this will really change things. No, no, this is from God, by God, through God. He doesn't make junk. This is going to work. This forgiveness is real. If he says you're forgiven, you are forgiven. You cannot doubt the gospel. And, and we need not doubt the, the accuracy of his transmission, right? Paul has gone at length to say, I've been so careful. And we see from his own life all the persecution he endures. So if he wanted to alter it and avoid persecution, he could. But he doesn't. He endures persecution, showing that he is being faithful. He feels like, I I wouldn't dare change it. Even if it means being whipped. Even if it means being jailed. I've got to say it as it is. So we need not doubt it. You cannot tweak the gospel. As we do theology, as we read the Bible, it's not up to us to add stuff, to subtract stuff. It's been perfectly made, written by God. I wouldn't change a dot, a period, a comma. It is from God. You cannot add to the gospel. And by this I mean, you may come in here this morning feeling like, yes, I know there's forgiveness through Jesus. But just to be on the safe side, I better get there on time. Or yes, I know that, that, that Jesus has purchased my redemption. But you know, but just to be on the safe side, I better observe the Sabbath. Because I wouldn't want God to get mad at me. Or I better, you just fill in the blank. These are the things that make us so weary about our relationship with God. It's all these little additions to the gospel. And these are often the things, these little additions, that keep people away from the church. We cannot add to the gospel. We must, not be, we must be careful not to, to look at somebody and say, Oh, I can't, oh, I can't believe I dress like that at church. You know, you're supposed to dress up at church. Are you? 
Is that the message? Is that our message? Is that the gospel we proclaim? No. We proclaim forgiveness through Christ. Let us be careful not to add to it our traditions, things that make us feel comfortable. Let's stay core to the gospel. And final thing, you cannot exhaust the gospel. So if you're sitting out there this morning thinking, yeah, but if you knew what I've done, or if you knew my track record, I mean, I have a checkered past. No, no, no. This gospel was made by God. This good news, this forgiveness was purchased through God. You think you can now somehow out his grace? You think you can somehow wander so wide that he cannot reach you? You think you can stoop to such depths that his hand cannot find you? God himself has made this gospel. He will find you with it. He will rescue you. He will scoop down and deliver you. God doesn't make junk. This gospel is perfect. It is complete. It will find you and it will rescue you. You cannot exhaust the gospel. So what can you do as we conclude? You can receive it as a gift. Receive the gospel as a gift. That's what it is. It's a gift. You couldn't have done it yourself. You couldn't have climbed up into heaven. He had to come down and just give us a gift. And he did. Right now we're in the middle of a birthday season with my family. In about three months, all five of us have birthdays. And our kids get so excited about all the presents that are coming. And they're, they're so pumped to get, to get these different uh, presents. And never once... As my child opened up a present and said, Oh, thank you, Dad. I promise I'll pay you back. I mean, I would appreciate that, but I, never once. Never once has my daughter said, Oh, Dad, I'm going to show you that I deserve this bike. What? No. It was my delight to give it to them as a gift. No strings attached. Just for you. It's your birthday. This is for you just being you. You can have it. And what does a child do? They just receive it as a gift. They don't say, hey, Dad, I'll work so hard. I'll, I'll go in half with you. No, they just, they receive it, don't they? And so in the same way, may I encourage you, may I invite you, may I remind you, the gospel is given to you as a gift. You can't add to it. You can't tweak it. You can't exhaust it. Just receive it as a gift. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful for what you've done. Lord, we know full well that we could not have done it. We, we see the darkness in our own hearts. We see our own issues. Lord, we know all too well that we are prone to wonder, prone to leave the God we love. And so, Lord, I pray now that you would bind us back to you, that we would be bound to this gospel. May this be our banner, forgiveness through Jesus, not through us, not through works, not through tradition, through Christ. May that be our song. Oh, Lord, unite us to that. Lord, and I pray for anyone out there this morning who's never just received the gospel as a gift. They thought church was all these various trappings. May they know this morning with all their heart that our message is the free gift of forgiveness. And for those of us who have maybe walked with you for years, but forgotten that joy. May we rediscover that free gift, that joy that comes when a child opens a present. May we have that same joy today. In Jesus' name, amen.